Well, as I mentioned last week, we looked at the first four seals in the first part of Revelation 6. And it was just, the, the chapter of, chapter 6 is just too much to, to try and squeeze into one sermon. You may think that, well, there's probably ideas and representations all among us. Some of you probably think, you could really slow down. There's so much more here that we need to talk about. There's so many more questions, and there are others of you that probably want me to speed up so we can get out of here. So wherever you are in that list, this is how it's fallen. We're going to break it up. We're looking at the second half. I mentioned last week that this is a parallel. Uh, the, the, the passage that we're in right now, beginning with chapter 5, verse 1, to 8, verse 1, parallels from 8, verse 2, on to eleven nineteen, And by parallel, meaning that they're speaking to the same things, but from a different vantage point. And this is common in Hebrew literature. We saw this a number of times as we studied Genesis. I say we saw it a number of times as we studied Genesis. We did, and I pointed out a few. I wish now I had pointed out more. I, I didn't always point them out because, you know, again, it's the sake of time. But now we're seeing this so clearly in Revelation, I think, that it, it does help us to appreciate that this isn't necessarily the way Western minds work or we think or we read, but it's important for us to consider the structure here because it is so different from the way we understand it. We typically pick up a book, and we often do this with the Revelation, where we start at the beginning and we go to the end and we expect everything to happen in kind of a linear fashion. I know I'm repeating myself and saying all of these things, but I'm repeating myself because it's, it's contrary to the way that we naturally think and read, and so it's important that we consider this. As we look at these two parallels from the big picture, I want to just back up for a second and look at it kind of from 30,000 feet. Uh, we see uh, the, the similarities. One is both of these uh, parallels begin in heaven with the preparation. So the preparation of the seals to be opened and then the preparation of the trumpets to be sounded or to be blown. Each of the first four, the first four seals and the first four trumpets are very similar and what they look like and what they foretell. Uh, the uh, following the sixth seal and the sixth trumpet, we get this interlude uh, in chapter 7 following the seals and chapter 11 following uh, the trumpets. And during this interlude, it's a, it's a snapshot back into heaven of something that we learn there. And then comes the seventh of each after that interlude. And that's, of course, completion. Seven is the number of completion or wholeness. And so we see that something is being finished. So understanding this structure, though, helps us not only understand the likeliness that this is the structure that we see here, and I hope you do uh, understand that, but also what a parallel accomplishes. A parallel can accomplish a number of things. First, and this is almost always true, a parallel accomplishes emphasis or intends to show us emphasis or importance because it's repeating something. And we do this in our own teaching methods, but we see this clearly in Scripture. When something's repeated, we ought to what? Pay attention. You know, it's important. Something's being said over and over. And so the parallel by repeating or telling, uh, in a sense, a different angle of the same thing, uh, it's, it's designed is to emphasize it. This is important. Another thing that a, par- a parallel can do, doesn't always do, uh, but can do is give us greater detail by telling a different angle on the same event or, or what has happened or what will happen. It allows greater detail to come through. That isn't always true, but often is. And so what 
is going on here is, is the, John is, is, in his writing the book of Revelation, is, is helping us to see that no matter how you come to the end times, I want you to see one thing. What's the theme? It's the sovereignty of God. Now, we've talked about overarching themes of Revelation, in a, in a sense, you know, it's redemption, it's the consummation, and so forth. But there's no question that we've already seen a central theme of the book of Revelation is God's sovereignty, that He is in control, that these things are not happening haphazardly, that it isn't this kind of like cross your fingers and hope that in the end it all works out okay, but it is sure that in the end God will carry out all that He has intended. If you think about a police officer gathering testimony from a car accident, and he goes around and he gets different witness testimony of what of, of the event and what it has happened. It's they're parallel testimonies. But if you've ever been a part of something like that, or if you've ever been to a trial, or if you've just watched crime drama on TV, you know that stories, accounts, witness testimony often tell very different versions of the same story. And of course that's a bad example in some ways because we live in a fallen world and you know, our sinfulness and our, in, uh, and our finiteness kind of get in the way of the illustration. But if we come at it from, uh, under, or come at this rather in terms of how we understand Scripture, then we can see that no matter how we look at the end, no matter how we come to the end, no matter how we see whether it's that final day uh, and, and, and all of that's going to happen, the thing that is, is the thread that runs through it all is God is in control of the mess. And isn't that comforting for us? Because we're in it right now. You know, at the day of Pentecost, which we mark today, you know, Peter got up and, and he preached a sermon and he said, you know, this is all to fulfill the prophecy of Joel, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit. Peter calls these the last days. They started all the way back at Pentecost. We're in the last days. So we're witnessing it. We're in it even though we'd all like to have a roadmap that tells us or takes us all the way to the end with all of the details. God doesn't give us that, uh, but he does give us this sure thing that I am in control. And so almost like looking at a diamond, you know, when you twist and you turn it, not that anyone has a diamond that big, but when you, when you hold a, di- a diamond and you twist and you turn it uh, and, and you see its brilliance from all different angles, so is scripture when we come to it. Right, we 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 don't twist scripture, but we we look at it from all different angles, and we see the beauty and the grandeur of who God is, and the gift of His Word to us. And so, in the Book of Revelation, we see His sovereign rule. So, with that today, we come to the fifth and the sixth seals here in chapter six. Now, I've mentioned there are the 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 two parallels of the the the, the main. Passages five one to eight one eight two to eleven nineteen, but there's also parallels within the prophecy itself. There are things that are going on at the same time. For example, we see that in the opening of the fifth seal, this is not happening after the four, the first four seals have have occurred. So we're given the description of the opening of the seals in a linear order, but what they're describing is actually simultaneous. It is while these tribulations are going on, the war, the pestilence, the bloodshed, the, you know, the, the, uh, the famine and all the things that are described there. It's during this time that the martyrs are crying out, how long, O Lord? 
And as we saw last week, I think that there is strong emphasis because of the way these two uh, sections are tied together, even though I didn't want to break them up. I hope that you're able to see this today, that there is an emphasis here on persecuted believers, particularly on martyrs, that that is what our attention is drawn to. Yes, everyone is affected by the famine and the pestilence and so forth. You know, everyone on earth is affected by these things, but there is... Um, there are connections here to help us to see the effects, particularly on those who give of their life for the name of Christ. How long, O oh Lord? That's what they're crying out. And that question is one that resonates with us, doesn't it? Uh, it's a question that I think every believer has asked in their lives. How long, Lord? How long do we have to wait? You know, it's, you think of, we talked about the importance of repetition. We need to hear things over and over again. And when we see something repeated, it emphasizes this is important. How many passages in Scripture tell us to wait, to be patient? A lot. And it's because we need to hear it over and over. We're not very good waiters. Uh, We're not very patient. We want things immediately. And and in our own time and context, it's the the Burger King culture. We want it our way right away, right, all the time. That's, that's, That's what we've become accustomed to. And so they cry out, how long? I think this is especially true when we're in times of trial, when we're in the the vice grip of life, when our world is kind of crumbling. I think that's when this question really tends to rise up from our souls. How long, Lord? How long must we wait? It's a question that the psalmist asks more than a dozen times. The psalm that we read this morning, it's there. How long, O Lord? It's in the, the, the prophets. I counted nearly half that many in the prophet Jeremiah alone this week. How long, O oh Lord? When life has become so painful and nothing makes sense, this is the question that raises, rises up in our hearts. How long? Lord, I'm, I'm tired. I'm weary. How long must we wait for our redemption? How long before everything will be made right? How long before the pain is gone? You may be asking God that question today. You may be under a weight that is heavy, one that's maybe even crushing. You feel like you're crumbling and you cry out, how long? Well, the answer to that hope, and we touched on this last week, but the answer to that question, the answer of hope, is found in the holiness of God and the justice that flows from His holiness, that is, in His judgment. And I'm not going to use this illustration, but I'll mention it. Uh, I'll let you unpack it in your head. It's an illustration you probably would think of when you, when you come to the idea of God's judgment. But if you consider someone who has suffered uh, a crime, what, what is the longing? What, what, you know, if, if you've um, you know, lost a loved one to murder, what do you long for? You know, nothing in the world can bring that loved one back. But you long for justice, right? And yeah, we live in a fallen world and our sense of justice is skewed and how we get justice is skewed. And I get all of that. That's why I don't want to really turn that into an illustration. But my point is, is that justice is required for things to be made right. And what we're longing for is for things to be made right. And while such a longing for justice can be selfish, it often is, you know, we think of getting revenge on someone. This isn't always the case. I think with revenge, it usually is. Revenge is me getting back at the person who wronged me, right? And that's usually motivated in a selfish sense. 
avenging someone else is me seeking justice on behalf of another person, for someone else. And that may or may not be selfish. Either way, we're still sinful in the process, and so it usually gets mucky or muddy, the waters do. But with God, He is never sinful. He is holy. And so His vengeance is always right and true and good. Deuteronomy 32 says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, for the Lord will vindicate His people. It ultimately belongs to Him. And this is where we have to, we have to let things go. We have to trust Him. It's not our job to seek vengeance. He will take care of everything. And this is what the martyrs are asking for. It's what we often ask for. And it's something that we need to trust God with. And so as we wait, we come to a passage like this and we draw comfort, especially from the words given to the martyrs. Rest a little longer. Wait. Be patient. God will make everything right. All right, in verse 9, we look at the the fifth seal, and the focus is taken away from what the horsemen in the the first four seals have been sent to do, and now we're looking back into heaven. And like the first four seals, we're not seeing a specific event in time, but rather a description of events over time throughout the church age. Between the time of Christ's ascension and His return, those who have been slain for His name for the witness they had borne. That's what the, the, the uh, in a sense, the accusation against them was. They are envisioned here under this altar in heaven, crying out, how long? Now we know that the, the earthly tabernacle and later the temple were modeled after a pattern in heaven. Moses is, is seen, he gets a snapshot of, of what is in heaven before he constructs the tent. But let's remember that there's no earthly anything that could ever capture what heaven is really like. And so we can't just think of the tabernacle or the temple bigger and think that's what heaven is. It's still just this fuzzy shadow. You know, it's, it's a type. We're looking through a glass dimly. It's just it's way, 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 way bad, better than we could ever think or imagine. And, and that's, that's my answer about, on heaven about everything. When people say, what's heaven going to be like? It's just going to be way better than we could ever think or imagine. Hebrews 8.5 says, They, meaning the, the, the tent, the tabernacle, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And so whatever John is, is describing here, it's just way, way, way better. And I'm saying this in part for our young people because I know when I looked at passages like this, it just makes heaven sound boring. And heaven's not going to be boring. I I, I can't tell you details other than it's just going to be better than we could ever think or imagine. Now, in terms of the altar, there's two altars that we see in in the tabernacle and the temple. One is the outer altar where the sacrifices were made. The other was in the Holy of Holies or before the Holy of Holies. It was the altar of incense. And I think this is more likely what John is describing here because when Jesus died... It was once and for all. There's no need for sacrifice anymore. And so I don't think that, uh, that this was being pictured there. Um, this would also fit with that earlier reference to the, the prayers of the saints being like the bowl of incense that we saw in that earlier passage. So this would fit in with that. Now, while John's vision is real and it represents true realities, 
I want to say again that the vision is not necessarily a literal representation of heaven. And I'm saying this again as a former young person who hasn't forgotten what it was like to be young, that when I read something like this, I thought, well, when I die and go to heaven, I'm going to be stuck under an altar forever and ever and ever until the end of time. And that sounds not only boring, but almost claustrophobic. Is that what heaven is like? No, it's not. This is a symbol, right? It's it's meant to help us understand something about those who have gone before, those who have died in faith. It shows us that, first of all, the saints are safely at rest. They're safe. They no longer need to be rescued. They're perfectly safe. They're already enjoying their Sabbath rest. And yet they're not inanimate, like some kind of soul sleep. They're engaged. They're crying out, how long, O Lord? They seem to be aware to some extent of what is happening on earth. Again, that's, there's not a lot of insight given on, on that whole dynamic. Do those who have died before, are they able to see what's going on? Uh, I, you know, we're not given that information other than this little peak that they're somehow aware that there's continued, continued suffering that has happened. It's not just their suffering. And they cry out against the injustice against God's holy name. Now, the term martyr in English comes from the Greek word for witness. The word martyr in English is not in most of our Bibles. Uh, I didn't look at all the translations, but for example, in the English Standard Version, we have in verse 9 the word witness, but that Greek word there is martyria. It's, it's that word that we get the English word martyr, and it's uh, translated witness. That's its fundamental meaning. That those who have died in the faith are those who have borne witness to Christ, to His name, and to His word. It is for their faith and their witness that they were killed. Verse 10 tells us their cries with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I won't, but we could spend the whole sermon on that prayer alone. There's a lot packed into that. Uh, the title alone is one that we've not only seen, but we understand is has great meaning. A lot of times when we read titles, especially of God in Scripture, we tend to go through them very quickly, uh, and we think, we wouldn't, th- we wouldn't say this, but I think somehow the way the way we treat it is almost like it's just haphazard. Like, you know, God, when He was inspiring His Word, He just kind of threw a name in and there, here and there, but that's not the case at all. This is significant, what is written here, and I'll mention more about that in just a minute. But first, I want to zero in on their question. They're asking, how much longer? Again, a question that we have all asked in our life. And we know, in part, an answer to this question. Jesus told his disciples when they asked, Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows but the Father only. So the answer is, we don't know. How long? We don't know. The second part of their question is one of God's judging and avenging the blood of the martyrs by dealing with those who persecuted them. And this is not a question of selfish judgment or selfish uh, avenging because the martyrs are already safe. They're already secure. They're not asking for their own benefit. They have no need for revenge. They wouldn't switch places for anything. They're not asking to go back and get revenge here. They're asking something else. 
Look at how they address God. Sovereign Lord, holy and true. That's a name we've seen already in the book of Revelation. In other words, they appeal to the one who is able. The only one who is able, I would add. But also to the one who is worthy, holy and true. Who is worthy of all worship and glory. It is because of who he is that they want to see the deaths avenged. Not for their own interest, not selfishly motivated, but for the name and the glory of God. Now the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, we have seen this already, we'll continue to see it, or a version that typically refers to those who have rejected the Creator and persecuted believers. So that's not a request for judgment on just random people on earth, but specifically that when it, that we see the people of earth or those who dwell on the earth, we're talking of those who have rejected the Creator, persecuted believers. Now one final thing I want to say about those who have suffered for the name is that we see two words that were used in the first four seals, slay in verse 4 and kill in verse 8, used again here in verses 9 and 11. And again, I I just want to say just additional evidence that I think there's a tie-in that we're supposed to see, that we're supposed to understand that, that while it's describing much more than the persecution of believers, that that is where our attention is being drawn. Even though all the inhabitants of the world are affected by these tribulations, we are to look at and consider those who are suffering for the name of Christ. And that is true as we pray and as we consider uh, how to be involved in lifting up our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for the name of Christ. In verse 11, we see a picture of their rest, their protection, their establishment. As we closed last week's service, we looked at 1 Peter 5.10 and that promise that was given, uh, uh, that, that, that Peter wrote to the, the suffering Christians at his time and the promise that's given to us today. This is the fulfillment of that promise. The rest that they received, the establishment that they received here. And they're waiting for a fixed time. It's not endless. They're not waiting forever, but they're waiting until all who will die will die. In other words, this is more evidence for the election, the doctrine of election, that God has established those who will be his and he will accomplish the salvation. He will not lose one. Verse 12 then brings us to the sixth seal, and it's not very interesting, so we'll just skip it and we'll go on to the next one. Um, no, this, this, is, this is the one that, that is, it's, the, you know, it, it's exciting, right? I mean, this is cataclysmic. Uh, it's striking to read. There's so much in this. I want to mention how the preterist, you know, we talked about the different views last week. I'm going to draw in some of those views uh, from time to time, just to help us understand how different people come at this. The preterist, as you might remember, understands that uh, all of these things that are described in the book of Revelation were fulfilled in the time, or, or roughly uh, shortly after, uh, completed with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And I'm not, I'm not a proponent of this view, um, but I do find several of the arguments compelling. But I want to share some of these arguments with you 
because I think they help us understand all of the views in a sense. David Clark writes this. He says, It may doubtless be taken for granted that these convulsions of nature were seen in vision and are not to be looked upon as actual occurrences, as no one would assume that the four horses actually rode over the earth but were symbolical representations of things that were to happen. So these convulsions of nature were probably to be understood in the same way. Striking and terrible things seen in the visions foretold striking and terrible judgments upon the wicked persecutors of the church. He goes on, I'm not sure, but this is that this is a feature of biblical symbolism to make sun, moon, and stars and such phenomena to represent the strong social and political powers or men in high places like kings, princes, or priests, or high officials of church and state. And in the confirmation, you will notice that the following verses refer to such a list of men. In verse 15, he's talking about as if to be a sort of commentary on those symbols. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is I think most American Christians have either been influenced by, have heard, or hold to the position that all of this is to be understood literally. And while I'm not, uh, again, arguing for the preterist view, his description of how to understand this symbolically is certainly compelling. And he's taking us back by reference to those Old Testament passages that we see. How do we understand? Well, we, under, we, interpret, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so we want to remain consistent in terms of how we understand all of Scripture when we come to something that is like this. So, for example, when we see in the book of Isaiah the foretelling of the destruction of Edom, Edom, those were the descendants of Esau, right? And they immediately or eventually met their judgment. And in Isaiah 34, it's described this way, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the sky shall roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. See the connection there with this passage. Clearly, John is thinking of this passage in Isaiah Another passage in Isaiah that describes the fall of Babylon says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Ezekiel also does this in describing Egypt. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. My point in mentioning all of this is that there is room for symbolic interpretations of these things. We're not, it doesn't have to exclusively be uh, literal in, in, in what these things are describing. And yet there's also room for them to be uh, literally fulfilled. And there's room for both. I mean, how confusing is that, right? You want an answer. You want me to tell you what all of this is. But you remember last week when I took you to Micah and I showed you how there's this prophecy and it's clearly speaking of the Messiah. And we go back to verse 2. We read verse 2 over and over again. But then there's all this other information. And some of that stuff was interpreted symbolically then. And then some of it was pointing to the future. And the same is true of literal fulfillments then into the future. And so we have to understand that we're not given a road map. It's not just this. To, it, this is not given to us to just, just figure it out. If you could just get the right teacher in here, if we get rid of Seth and get the guy who will stand up here and say, this is what this means, then we'll know it all. We'll have it all figured out, and we can have everything in place all the way up to the end. That's not why the book of Revelation was given to us. It's given to us to see our glorious king who reigns on the throne, who holds us in the palm of his hand. Now, 
symbolically, the preterist has to interpret those things symbolically, doesn't he? Right? You're dealing with events that happened in the past that we can see, and we know that during that time, I mean, the sun's still shining, the moon's still shining, the stars are still up in the sky, uh, uh, mountains, islands. It says every mountain and island will be moved from its place. That hasn't happened. So for the preterist to take this position, it has to be uh, symbolic. The historicist rather would have to do the same thing in terms of what this represents in history. Uh, so only the futurist or idealist could have room here for literal um, fulfillments. And even for, uh, specifically for the futurist, it can't all be literal. Why not? What would happen if a star fell on the earth? I mean, it wouldn't happen, right? I mean, earth would burn up before the star ever got close. Stars are huge. They're massive. They're way bigger than the earth. And so this is at least in part describing something in a symbolic way. And so could it all be symbolic? Yes. Could some of it be symbolic and some literal? Yes. Let me give you a third option. It could be symbolic of something that literally happens. For example, meteor showers. You see, they appear like stars falling. Uh, a volcanic eruption. What happens when a volcano erupts with lava, but huge chunks of lava fall back down? You know, it, like it can appear like stars. Others have gone a little further than I would with uh, nuclear bombs. You know, and, and trying to describe these things. So there could be a symbolic representation of something that will literally happen. However, we understand it. However we come at this, the point is the sixth seal is describing something significant. Everything is changed. Nothing, in a sense, no stone is left unturned. These are unprecedented things, whatever they represent. Whether literal or symbolic, everything that we take for granted that is fixed the fact that the sun rises every morning and sets every evening, the fact that the waters are where they are, the mountains aren't falling us, islands aren't being removed, all those things that we consider, whether those are literal or we consider the things that they could represent being the symbolic powers of the world, the world rulers and institutions, the point is is that all of this is going to be undone. And not only are all of these things going to be undone, but every class of people we see represented here in verse 15, I mean, the description is clearly trying to describe everyone, and it says everyone in the list. They are being described here as full of terror, hiding among rocks and in caves. Again, I um, just show you how the preterist understands that. We're featuring the preterist this week, uh, preterist view, showing you how they would understand this view. Uh, they would go back to the historical account from the historian Josephus and how he described the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. This is what he wrote. So now the last hope which supported the tyrants and that crew of robbers who were with them was in the caves and caverns underground whether if they could once fly, they did not expect to be searched for, but endeavored that after the whole city should be destroyed and the Romans gone away, they might come out again and escape from them. This was no better than a dream of theirs, for they were not able to lie hid either from God or from the Romans. Does that sound a little bit like what we see in Revelation? Even if you don't hold the preterist view, you can at least, like I am, be sympathetic to it. You can at least understand what they're coming from. And so my point is, is that the, these, these events seem extreme, and they are. There is at least the possibility 
of our, our understanding them differently than maybe what we grew up thinking or what uh, movies or books have told us to think about these things. But I will say this, that at the end, this description certainly fits with the end description that we see in other passages of Scripture. Whether we look at the teachings of Jesus and His description of the last day, or, for example, this passage from 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So no matter how we understand this, it is clearly, though, an answer to the prayers of the saints in the fifth seal. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our deaths? Clearly, God's judgment will avenge all of the wrongdoing of those who have given their lives for His names, those who have been persecuted. He does vindicate His name. He does vindicate His people through this incredible judgment so that they would, they would wish that they could run and hide and that they would wish that the rocks would fall on them, that they would die rather than face the ruler of heaven and earth. And folks, this is what we truly fear. Not death itself, but facing the one who made us. See, if death were simply an end of it all, if we just ceased existing, as some would say, I don't think we would, would <laughs> I don't think we would fight against the goads so much when it comes to death. Because what happens as we age? Life is exhausting. It's painful. Wouldn't we like to just have a never-ending nap, so to speak? I mean, you could be sympathetic to that view. Why would we be afraid of that? Why do people fear death? That ain't the reason. I actually think people would look forward to it. I get why atheists and secularists would want to believe such a thing, but it doesn't explain why they would fear death or even try to put it off as they age. I would argue instead that deep within our souls, we know there is something more. We know that we were made for more than this, and that all of this didn't spontaneously pop into existence. I think that deep within, we know there's not only the possibility of a creator, but that everything we see and everything we experience is actually strong evidence that there is a creator. And then, if there is one who made all of this, then in death we must face Him. And this, this is what people fear. Not death, but facing the one who made them. It's the unknown. It's the the fear of, what if I didn't measure up? What if I don't measure up? How can I measure up? How could I measure up? Who could stand? That's the question they ask as they ask for the rocks to fall on them. That's not such a bad thing. That's where we should go with this. I think it's actually wise to look around and notice the grandness of the ocean or the stars in the sky or a mountain that rises up and realize how small we are. I think it's wise to consider the personhood of humans, the dignity and worth that we see, the wisdom and creativeness and personal interactions that we enjoy, all of which set us apart from the animal kingdom. And take to heart that we were made different, made in the image of our Creator. I think it's wise that we look deeply into the eyes of a newborn 
or we grasp the frail hand of the beloved parent as they face death, and we consider our beginning, and we consider our end, and how finite we really are. It is not a terrible thing that we acknowledge we are not able to perpetuate our lives or even our legacy, that we're not able to prevent death. Death and taxes, right? None of us are able to escape it. And we certainly can't make it all matter, whether it's in this lifetime or years after we're dead. No dignity and worth have to come from outside of us, have to be beyond us, have to be outside for there to be any lasting consequence because everything else, just like us, fades away like dust in the wind. Not only does our world around us our own existence, our own dignity, and our worth point us to a creator. We must come to grips with the fact that he exists when we die. That's what rattles us. That's what shakes us. That's the ultimate question. That's what's being described in verse 17. Who can stand? And that's the ultimate question that we have to ask ourselves. Who can stand before a holy God? The psalmist asks this question, Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He, here's the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Okay, there's the answer. So who of us can raise our hands? Who of us can say, me, I have clean hands. I have a pure heart. I've never lied, never been deceitful, never been deceived by anyone. Anyone? I want to remind you of the exhortation I gave to you when we went through chapters 4 and 5. I said, remember chapter 4 and 5. That vision into the throne room in heaven. Remember this because we're going to come back to it again and again. We've got to come back to it again and again, especially when we get to the really painful, messy stuff that's coming. Because there is the answer. Who was worthy to take the scroll? John said, I cried out and I wept because no one was worthy. And the angel comes and says, there's one who's worthy. The lamb is worthy to take the scroll. The lamb is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord. The lamb has clean hands and a pure heart. And the lamb came to give his life so that we might be freed from the penalty of our sin. In life or in death, we have no need to fear if we are trusting in Jesus, the Lamb of God. We are able to stand. We are able to stand because He stood in our place. Won't you see the great gift that this is and believe in Him today? And Christian, won't you turn back to this again and again and again? We need to remember this. When we when we are overcome by our own sin, when we feel unworthy and crushed under the weight of our guilt, when the shame of our past and the shame of our present blurs our vision, when the physical suffering of this life is too much to bear, or when you can't seem to move past the wrongs that have been done against you, look to the Lamb and live. Look and rest. Look and wait with patience because He is coming. You don't have to look for a rock to hide under. You don't have to find a cave to crawl into if you are trusting Christ. You have no need to despair in this life or death when it comes.
You have only to look to Christ in faith and be assured that he is yours and you are his. Let's pray.